Only thing unplugged is Forgotten Seasons. What is good, everybody? Welcome to Forgotten Seasons. This is your host, Dylan Dreyfus. Today, a little bit of a different format. As you know, usually we relive an entire team season. But today, we are going to be diving deep into the epic heavyweight battle between Vince Carter and Allen Iverson in the 2001 Eastern Conference semifinals. One of the greatest playoff series of all time and the absolute apex of both Allen Iverson and Vince Carter. Joining me to travel back to May of 2001 is Justin Tinsley, a frequent on ESPN's Around the Horn, an author, and a writer for ESPN's The Undefeated. A few top-of-line notes on both VC and AI. Starting with Vince, this was year three of his career. He averaged 27 points per game and was hitting the three ball at a 40% clip. However, despite his brilliance, he was trying to shake that label that we've seen so many times of amazing player, all the talent in the world, but can he show up in the big moments? Shifting over to Iverson, a real transformational year for Chuck. His 2001 playoff run is up there with the greatest runs ever, even though it didn't result in a championship. But to really appreciate this moment of Iverson's career, you have to understand just who he was at this time and what he was going through. He was a man villainized by the media and the league office for his off-the-court and some on-the-court actions. But 2001 is where he becomes a true leader and league MVP. Before we get into this one, as always, if you find yourself coming back, please drop a rating and a review. Takes a few seconds, but makes a big difference. Also, check out the rest of the Showtime Basketball catalog. We got all the smoke, KG certified, what's burning. A great lineup of shows hosted by NBA legends. Definitely tap in. Let's get into this one. Forgotten Seasons, Vince Carter versus Allen Iverson 2001 begins right now. Welcome, everybody, to Forgotten Seasons. Welcome to my man, an early supporter of Forgotten Seasons, Justin Tinsley. JT, how's it going today, man? Man, it is a true honor and privilege and pleasure to be on, excuse me, to be on here with you, man. Like, I can't wait to dive into these topics, bro. Like, it's, I'm so excited. Now, the feeling is mutual. Um, you wrote an amazing article about the Iverson Vince Carter playoff series, I believe last year, which got me down the rabbit hole. I think NBA fans view this as one of, if not the greatest non-finals playoff series ever. We have Allen Iverson and Vince Carter at their absolute apexes. To begin, I want to just set the scene, talk through with you what the league was like in 2001. I think today we look back at this early 2000s time period with a lot of love. Like this is a, mm -hmm. a raw, um, a, a new generation of stars are in the league. But in the moment when I was looking back, it's a it's kind of a weird time in the league. This is post-Jordan. This is pre-LeBron. The NBA ratings are down. And there's a real identity crisis with the NBA. I think the, the 90s was sort of the suit and tie buttoned up era. And now yeah. we have this new generation of stars led by Allen Iverson, who is wearing baggy clothes. He's, you know, uh, all tatted up. And the NBA led by David Stern does not does not like this. It reminds me a lot of like how baseball is today. They're trying to downplay all the flashiness. So as we're setting the scene, what do you remember just about this time in the league and the relationship between this new generation of players led by Allen Iverson and the media and commissioner David Stern? Yeah, it's, it's great that you mentioned that. And I think before we even get to 2001, uh, you mentioned post-Jordan and pre-LeBron. 
but this is also pre-lockout, I mean, post-lockout as well. So you're still dealing with the nastiness that was uh, that 1998, 1999 lockout. Obviously, the Spurs won in 99, and Shaq and Kobe get their first title in 2000. So when you're coming into 2001, people really aren't talking about the lockout anymore, but there's still a feeling of, like, I remember what that felt like, and that didn't mm -hmm. feel good. And obviously, Michael Jordan uh, not being there, um, obviously that that you know clouds a lot of things too. And we'll we'll get into that topic. I kind of remember this as being like the beginning of the cultural revolution that the NBA experienced. Yes, it it, it was with guys like Allen Iverson. It was with guys like Vince Carter because uh, one of the most important moments for the NBA after that lockout was the 2000 dunk contest. Mm -hmm. And because if you remember, uh, the last dunk contest before 2000 was 97 when Kobe won. Kobe won it in 97. There wasn't a there wasn't a dunk contest in 1998, which is kind of crazy because the 98 All-Star game was at Madison Square Garden. Why wasn't there a dunk contest? Because the, the ratings and the feel around the dunk contest and around the mid the mid to late 90s, it was just like, oh, this isn't what it used to be. Uh, so like Kobe won it in 97. For whatever reason, I, I, I guess the reasons that I named and probably even more, there wasn't a dunk contest in 1998. Jordan's last All-Star game, it was Kobe's first All-Star game in Madison Square Garden. You would think of all places to have a dunk contest, you would have it there, but they didn't. And obviously there was no All-Star weekend in 1999. So 2000, what Vince Carter did with Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady and uh, Steve Francis, that mm -hmm. was big. So, and then you start to... And of course, the, 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 the face of all of this is Allen Iverson and in good ways and in negative ways. Uh, like he, he was young. He, he played he played under uh, John Thompson at Georgetown. So he had that cultural stamp going for him. Obviously, we know the story about what happened uh, to his high school career when he was in Virginia and, and, and why he had to serve some time uh, being incarcerated. But. The early 2000s, I remember this being, as I said, the start of that cultural revolution where you start to see so many different strands attach themselves to the NBA, whether it be uh, pop culture and, and, and of course, you know, hip hop. Like, I, obviously, uh, I remember Vince Carter sticking his arm in the rim and, you know, different rappers talking about that. And obviously, Iverson was always a big time muse for rappers for, for you know, for beyond obvious reasons. And but honestly, with that cultural revolution came a pushback because so many people, especially during that time at the turn of the century, so many people who were covering the sport didn't look like the guys who were actually playing the sport. And once you have that cultural disconnect, there's going to be there's going to be some times when you bump heads. So when you ask me about that, uh, cultural revolution sounds great and it sounds fun, but. You can't have a revolution without some pushback. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the media members. I think it's dominated at this time by a lot of older, yeah. you know, white dudes. Mm -hmm. The 2000 Olympics was a big sort of buzz topic. Allen yeah. Iverson does not get selected to the Olympics. They say it's because, oh, you have to earn your stripes. It's for veterans. There's shooting guards like Steve Smith and Allen Houston on the team who are great players, but they're not Allen Iverson. And right. AI says about this, you know, everybody knows why I was left off. Uh, I don't have to say it. I think that that was because the NBA was kind of worried about putting Allen Iverson out into the world and having that be the representation of the NBA, which even though yeah. he was internally, that's not what they wanted. Um, so, so 
for the people that, that didn't live through this time, how can you best illustrate the challenges that, that Iverson specifically faced on a constant basis with the media? Oh, man. How much time do we have for, for hey, that we, answer? We got all man. day. <laughs> I mean, for the media, in so many ways, Allen Iverson was like their favorite punching bag. Like everything he did was calls for chaos, disruption, controversy. And sometimes, you know, the Iverson stepped into it on his own. This mm -hmm. isn't this isn't like he was completely innocent in all this. And even right. he, he's even said this in previous interviews, but but Allen Iverson represented, I I'll say this. I don't know an athlete who is as important to the cultural relevancy of his or her individual sport more than Allen Iverson, because especially at that time, the NBA couldn't lean on Michael Jordan and who presented himself in a different way, which is not a bad thing at all. It just wasn't Iverson. Mm -hmm. Iverson came in looking like his generation. You know, he listened to hip hop a lot. You know, this is when cornrows were really uh, starting to uh, uh, appear in uh, everywhere. I, I remember people. I remember people in my school, guys and girls, getting cornrows because of Allen Iverson. I remember, you know, when he started wearing the arm sleeve. Guys used to go. To, uh, guys used to go to the uh, pickup court with like tube socks, <laughs> like an arm sleeve, because Allen Iverson did it. Like this dude was so important, and he inspired so many people. But he inspired so, especially so many young young black kids growing up and he wore that with the badge of honor and I don't even know if he was trying to do it he was just being himself so you know when he would show up with the jewelry when he would show up with the do-rags on when he would show up with the baggy clothes that that threatened a lot of people and when you start to threaten people who don't understand you and your life experiences they're going to try to tear you down at every opportune moment so you know if it was how he talked if it was how he dressed if it was the people he had around him there was always something for the media to poke on and pride and pick on Allen Iverson for. Again, this isn't to say that he was completely innocent in everything he did because he was not, but there, there was a groundswell of, yo, I don't understand this dude. Let's pick him apart at every possible moment. So when you talk about those 2000 Olympics, it, it's, it's, it's almost asinine that you don't have Iverson on that 2000 team. Like, you know, and he was already one of the league's best players. He was already putting up uh, you know, an, an ungodly amount of points per night in, in, in just his, what, third or fourth season in the league at that point. But that was, that was a, you know, maybe outside of Isaiah on the 92 team, like it, that, that was as almost as egregious because you can't, you can't sit here and tell me that Allen Iverson wasn't one of the 12 best players to put on that 2000 Olympic team. No disrespect to Steve Smith, of course. No disrespect to Allen. I'm not Allen Iverson. Allen, Allen Houston, because they were great players in their own right, and they deserved to be there. But Allen Iverson also deserved to be there as well. But there was so much, uh, honestly, negativity and controversy surrounding his name that, like, they, you know, Team USA and David Stern and just the power, powers that may be, they, they were like, I don't feel comfortable putting this young, you know, and a lot of people saw him as a thug. They was like, I don't want to put that thug out there to represent our country. And unfortunately, those are the type of things that Allen Iverson had to deal with, not just in 2000, but but honestly, the majority of his career. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned that word thug, and, and that's not only whispered, that is put mm -hmm. in newspapers constantly labeling him as a thug and, and thug mentality. Yep. Shifting gears to Vince Carter, I want to just 
kind of set the stage for both of their careers. You mentioned Iverson. So going into 2001, this is his fifth season in the league. Um, Vince, this is his third season in the league. And talking about Vince, I think today it's hard not to focus on, but we see the dunks. He's probably the best dunker of all time. But just how good he was right away in the league, I think, has been lost. He was the first person ever to average 27 points a game hit two threes a game and shoot it at 40% from deep. That has only been done a handful of times since the next time it happened was 2013. So you have from 1980 to 2013, where he is the only player to do that in a league where players are not shooting a lot of threes. But despite that, there's constant labels being thrown on him and a lot of players by the media and the NBA trying to find that next Jordan. And Vince mm-hmm. was an easy, easy target. They played the same position. They went to the same college. They spent the same amount of time in college, but no disrespect to Vince. You know, he just, he just wasn't Michael Jordan, but can you just, just illustrate to the people what the emergence of Vince Carter was like, because this predates social media, but it was a spectacle. Yeah. I don't think that's a nitpicking stat at all for the record, because thank you. Thank you. When you, when you, when you mentioned that stat in that era, now when we hear 27 points a game, two, three, hell, we're expecting you to hit four, five threes a game in 2022 and, and then shoot 40% from three. Like in the late 90s, early 2000s, that is an Unheard ungodly of. type of step. Like you, you got to put, you know, so when people hear this, I hope they put it in context with the actual time that it happened. That was incredible. And yes, for the bang for my buck, Vince Carter is the greatest dunker of all time, like it, it, in NBA history. Like I, I, I will go to my grave thinking that until somebody else proves me wrong. Now, when Vince Carter, Vince Carter was already one of the most exciting players in college. He went to one of the blue blood schools, obviously North Carolina, and he was, you know, super exciting there. Played with Antoine Jameson, a, a bunch of other great guys out there. I believe Ed Cota was uh, was his point guard in North Carolina. I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong on that. I'll have to dig um, into that one. Yeah, but you know, so when he there, there was an excitement of him coming to the league because he was must see TV at Carolina. We just didn't know where he was going to go in the league and how, you know, feasible it was going to be to see him on a nightly basis. Now, obviously, he was drafted by Golden State, but then he was traded to Toronto for the 4-5 swap with his college teammate, Antoine mm-hmm. Jameson. So the, I, I truly think if Vince Carter doesn't go to Toronto, I don't know if basketball is still in Toronto. Like, he's, he's that important. He's that like he he is when when they call him Air Canada like that it's name. Not a joke. Stuck. Oh, look that at name. the look at the Grizzlies. I mean, yeah. they, another Canadian team that didn't get that Vince Carter. They tried yeah. to get Steve Francis, but he wouldn't go there, and they ceased to exist. Exactly, and and it sucks because Vancouver is a great city, obviously, but it Memphis is, is a, a wonderful and historic basketball city as well. But in terms of Vince Carter, so when he got to the league, there was an instant excitement. Um, and this is, it honestly is what the NBA needed. Like the NBA for so long and they, and you know, people within the league who worked in these positions at that point in time, they said it themselves. Like they got, they got comfortable when Michael Jordan was in the league. Michael Jordan was going to get you ratings just off of the fact that Michael Jordan stepped on a basketball court, whether he was playing in Madison square garden or whether he was playing in Vancouver with the expansion team Grizzlies at that point, like you could put Michael Jordan on TV 82 games a year and you have each night will probably get a higher rating than the next. That's, that's how, that's how easy life was for the NBA with Michael Jordan. 
So when he left, there was like, okay, who do we have? Yeah, they, they had a ton of great young stars, but they didn't have Michael Jordan. But but Vince Carter in particular, it, it, it felt like from day one, you can tell this guy was going to be a superstar in the league. And you just mentioned the stats. Uh, um, you mentioned something to me even before the call. Like he was what, what one of like five or six players before 1980. Yeah. Um, so after 1980. Yeah, in the first two years of a career since 1980, up until that point, the only players that have averaged 22 points a game through their first two seasons are Michael Jordan, Mitch Richmond, who's who's forgotten. He was nice. If you don't know who he is, Hell yeah, everybody he go is. look at him. Shaq, Hell David yeah. Robinson, AI, and Vince. So it's like, right. It's right away. That, that those are all Hall of. I mean, Mitch yeah, Richmond should be in the Hall of Fame. I, I think he, he is. Knows. Oh, he is. Oh, yeah, yeah. He. Mm-hmm. You're right. He is. So they're all Hall of Famers. And Vince Carter will one day, of course, be in the Hall of Fame. But he was good from the jump. You, you, you look back at, the, at just what opposing players and opposing coaches were saying about him. And it's like, we can't do anything with him. No, you can't. Like, and it, it, he was, he, you know, Iverson was more of a volume shooter. Like, mm-hmm. he was going to get his 30 points. But sometimes it was going to take him 22, 23 shots. shots to get yeah. there. <laughs> on, on a good night, Vince Carter could get you 30 and he could take. 14 15 shots and still get to the rim and like he he was he was quite efficient uh on his best day so Vince Carter was he was he was far, he's the greatest dunker of all time but that if, if you just um belittle him to just being a dunker obviously you didn't watch him and two you you weren't you're not giving respect to a future hall of famer and just how polished his all-around game actually was Beautiful. It, it, it was it was just a beautiful game. Yeah. Pivoting back to Iverson real quick, we talked about his his feuds with the media, yeah. but I think another area that has been forgotten is his uh, his problems with the Sixers organization. They yeah. actually traded him in the summer yeah. of two thousand. Not trade speculation, not rumors. They put the pen to paper and traded him to Detroit in a four-team deal that involved Glenn Rice, Christian Leitner, and a few other names. The only reason that trade doesn't go through is because Matt Geiger, a decent but but not great big man on the Sixers, refused to uh, waive his trade kicker to make the trade go through. So Iverson not only is dealing with the public, he's also dealing with the Sixers organization. He is pleading and, and making his case to be named captain of the Sixers, which was met with great hesitancy by their organization and Larry Brown. So Iverson is just trying to find his way, but I think this season is really the transformation of him. He does get awarded that captaincy and throughout the season, you hear and see pieces that he is becoming that leader. He is becoming that person mentally and emotionally that everybody so wanted him to be. Do you remember just, just the transformation of the discourse surrounding Iverson as that 2000, 2001 season goes underway. The Sixers obviously jump out to that great start. They end up with the one seed. Iverson runs away with the MVP. What does that transformation of Iverson look like in that season? You know, like I remember that season clearly. I was coming into my own at that point. I was at a different point in time in my life, leaving middle school to go to high school. I was a huge basketball fan. And I used to just like try to swallow all the NBA information that I could, like whether the early days of the internet, newspapers still at the time. And I remember hearing about, you know, that Iverson trade that that damn near was. And 
I look back on it. I remember hearing, obviously, the, the the practice situations where he would show up late sometimes. Sometimes he would be the first one out the door. Obviously, the controversy with with the, his rap album and uh, you know the people he offended with that. And David Stern damn near had a heart attack when he <laughs> when he heard that tape. Like he, you know, uh, as much as I love Chuck, like he wasn't. He didn't make it easy on himself in a lot of ways, you know. Like again, I, I, he was not a hundred percent innocent in a lot of things that he did, but he always. One thing about Allen Iverson is he always owned up to it eventually too. He was like, you know what, I was tripping. You know, I I shouldn't have done that. And but also like he was, what, two thousand? What is he like? 24, 24. 25? Mm-hmm. Like you're still finding your way in the world. And again, I'm not trying to make an excuse for him, but we've all been. 24, 25. Hell, I'm 36 still trying to find my way in the world in some in, in some ways, you know? So I remember that the controversy and just it, it felt like the weight of the world was on Iverson's shoulder. So when I heard about that trade, I'm like, wow, like I can't even nowadays, I can't even imagine Iverson being traded from Philly. You know, he's so synonymous with that city. And but it's, it's one of the great what ifs in NBA history. I go back to like, what if the Lakers draft Dominique Wilkins? in and number one overall in 1982 instead of James Worthy or like what if the Bulls actually traded Michael Jordan to the Clippers like that mm-hmm. was a thing that almost happened or like what if Kobe didn't didn't leave Charlotte or what if Tim Duncan actually joins T-Mac in, in Orlando in 2000 like Iverson to, to Detroit was literally the closest of all of those ever it happened and like you said it all hinged on Matt Geiger like, I know. <laughs> it, it, like the, the the cultural relevancy and significance in a lot of ways of the of the NBA in the early 2000s doesn't necessarily hinge on Allen Iverson. It hinged on Matt Geiger. So when you when you when you when you read stories from Pat Croce, at, at, who was the uh, GM at the time of the Sixers, you see they're like when they ask him like how close was Iverson to getting traded, he'll tell you like oh it's as close as close can get. It was gonna happen. Crochu was a huge fan of Iverson, but you know he he was just butting heads with Larry Brown and Sixers yep. management to the point where it almost left them no choice. Thankfully, Matt Geiger saved the entire NBA. Um, but I think that was a reality check for AI too. You know, like he's like, okay, well, I am the best player on the team, but that doesn't mean it's I business. can just get away. You know, yeah, business. I can't get away with whatever the hell I want to do at times. So. And that 2000, 2001 season, you did see a turn in AI. Like he, he his leadership skills improved. Obviously, uh, how he could, how he communicated with his teammates improved. Which is why, of all the stories you hear about Allen Iverson, you don't you don't really hear about his former teammates saying like, "Oh man, it sucked to play with this guy." Like no, they no. always say, like this dude left it all on the court. He was a great teammate. And I think in that 2000, 2001 season, you really start to see everything come together for AI, you know, and it, it showed like he led the league in scoring that year, 31 points a game, which was, I believe the highest since MJ. Jordan. In 90, yeah. Since in 93 at that point. So it, it was, it was beautiful to come to, it, it was beautiful to see it come together like that. So. Yeah. Real funny on Matt Geiger. I, I did a post about that almost trade and said that mm-hmm. um, when they build Iverson statue in Philly, which I don't believe is, is built yet. They got to put a little plaque with Matt Geiger's name yeah. at the bottom of it because yes. he, he is the reason he's there. And I also think just real quick that Iverson, the leadership, something that that 
has been forgotten that was a great moment is after he won the 2001 all-star mvp the first thing he did is says where's larry brown where's my coach which doesn't sound significant but when you go back and realize how much those two butted heads and and resented each other that i think symbolized his transformation into the true leader into the playoffs and and i think too just to go go off what you said uh Larry Brown loved Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson loved Larry Brown. But sometimes love is a is a complicated emotion, you know? So, mm-hmm. like, there were times when, I mean, hell, if you read Phil Jackson's book, he, he was thinking about trading Kobe for Jason Kidd and Sean Marion. Phil you Jackson, know, just- Phil Jackson was a, I mean, they call him, uh, he's, he's the guru, but the Zen master, but he, yeah. he really played mind games with his players. Yeah, he really did. He really did. But in terms of Larry Brown and Allen Iverson, like they, they loved each other. And I think they always wanted the same thing. It's just their, their personalities didn't mesh at the beginning. And I think it was something that Allen Iverson just needed to, to realize how important it was for the betterment of his career. And I think Larry Brown understood, like, yo, I need this guy as well. I just need us to be on the same page. And once they got there, they were there. And, and the way that, you know, we talked about AI's interview with uh, Stephen A. Smith in like 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. There's a part in there where Larry Brown comes up and Allen Iverson tears up. And he was like, I love that guy. Like, mm-hmm. we went through hell together. I put him through hell. He put me through hell, but like they came out on the other side together. And I believe, I believe it was an indie, which when I tell this story, it may not be all that surprising. Given no, the, I, I know where you're going and it yeah. wasn't indie. It wasn't. Yeah. Indie. So somebody was calling him, was it jailbird from the stands? Mm-hmm. And I believe Iverson responded in a way that he should not have responded. But, you know, Larry Brown came to his defense in a lot of ways. He's like, you can't keep calling him outside of his name while he's trying to play a game for something that happened in his past. And so like, they started to defend each other. They can't, and once they started to like grow together, they, they, they really became, yeah, they flourished. And like that team made it all the way to the finals. And I'm sure we'll talk about that, but that Larry Brown, Larry Brown and Allen Iverson, uh, I guess coming on the same page together changed the trajectory of both of their careers. And, and I think uh, for, for a better way, at least in that moment in time. A hundred percent. Larry Brown's a legend. That's somebody I'd love to just sit down with. You go back in his track record. He was a, a big ABA yeah. coach. He's, he's been, he's been a key figure in a lot of, of big moments in NBA history. Yeah, for um, sure. So then pivoting to Vince real quickly, the Sixers finish as the, the one seed Allen Iverson wins MVP. Vince has a breakout season, takes big leaps. The Raptors finish as the four seed. And we mentioned Vince's brilliance, one of the most talented players ever. But that label, similar to how a LeBron was looked at early in his career, is that he's great, he's talented. But when the, the lights are shining the brightest, yeah, yeah. He, he's not going to show up. Um, and in the playoffs before, in 2000, they really get embarrassed by the Knicks in the first round. They get swept through yep. zero. Vince averages like under 20 points. He shoots 30% from the field. So he's still it. feeling that. And in the first round of the playoffs, the Raptors play the Knicks again. They're down 2-1. Vince struggles. And you have his own teammates really calling him out in the media. Charles Oakley, who's still talking talking shit about NBA players, yeah. is saying basically like, you know, Vince needs to step up. We're not going to win this series if he doesn't. 
Vince responds in game four and five of that series. He averages 30. He shoots like 70% from three guns blazing. So we really have Vince overcoming that mental hurdle of being labeled as a player that isn't going to show up in the, in the bright moments. Uh, and Iverson coming off that MVP and breezing through the Pacers in round one. So we have this convergence of these two forces coming together and it, uh, it all comes together in that second round playoff series. I guess just like try and encapsulate the, the feeling and the discourse that was going on as these two forces met in the second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. Man, okay. I'm from Virginia. So like Allen Iverson can do no wrong to a lot of us in Virginia. And so we're, we're, we're rooting for him for that, for that matter. But like, we're also huge Vince Carter fans because how could you not be a big Vince Carter fan in 2001? And it, it it's great that you mentioned the the labels that were placed on Vince uh, at that point in time in his career, because I, I still think somebody like a James Harden struggles with those labels right now. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah, great, you know, great individual player, you know, one of a once in a generation type talent, but can he get it done in the big game? So I, re- I remember. Oh, go ahead. To, f- to be fair, Vince Carter, this was year three and those yeah. labels being placed on him. James Harden That's has, true. has, has, has had true. his fair chances. That, that to your point is year three. I remember thinking like, damn, man, he's only been in the league three years. Like, I, I mean, crazy. anyways, uh, I was happy when, you know, they overcame the Knicks in that 0-1 series. And as you said, Vince played out of his mind. I was like, oh, man, that's the best I've ever seen Vince Carter play. And I'm like, little did I know this Iverson versus Carter series was coming in together. So it was already going to be exciting because it was Allen Iverson, Vince Carter. You know what I mean? Two of the most exciting players in the league, two of the most exciting teams in the league. And you just figure like, all right, well, these two teams are going to be going at it for years to come because they, they were built to be playing each other for, you know, a couple of seasons. But I had no clue that 0-1 series was going to be what it became. Like the the trading, the 50-point games. It was like, okay, AI. So just to set the scene, like talk about, those 50 point games you were mentioning. So in game two, AI starts out with 54, then yep. Vince responds and has 50. And then in game five, AI has 52 again. So just to sort of put the, the chronological, chronological like, order on those games. And it, it was it was amazing because I think in game six, like Vince didn't have, uh, that was another game where people were like, oh, Vince needs to step up. Vince needs to do this. I believe he, he didn't have 50, but I think he had like 39. In, in game yep. six. So, mm-hmm. like, it was like watching, like, to me, my favorite round of boxing ever is round one of Hagler Hearns. Like, it was just nothing but hay- haymakers. They were just, like, trying to kill each other. It was it was amazing to watch. And that's what that series felt like. I, I didn't know that at the time because I wasn't as familiar with Hagler Hearns in 2001 as a 15-year-old as I am now. But, like, there were just nothing but haymakers. It was like, oh, man, AI dropped 54 in game two, so you're going back to school the next day, you're going into the lunchroom with all your boys, like, yo, AI dropped 50, like 52, 54 last night. What's Vince going to do? And then two nights later, like, oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> dropped 50. Like, what is going on? Then a couple of games later, AI drops another 50 pieces. Like, we knew in the moment that this series was special. Like, this is exciting. This is exactly what, you know, we as NBA fans wanted to see. And even I, I would love to know like what 
NBA brass and upper levels of NBA management were thinking about that series, especially as Allen Iverson performed at the height that he did, because this is, you know, he's the counterculture hero of the NBA. You know, he's the uh, the MVP, the all-star game MVP, but he's a guy who has, you know, had so much labeled on him, thrown against him, stereotyped, uh, you know, against his, against his favorite. It's just like they threw so much at the guy and the guy still performs like this. I would love to have been a fly on the wall in those, you know, you know, watching the games with the upper level of NBA brass. But in the moment, myself, I'm thinking like, I just wanted to go seven. Like, if you yeah. give me seven of this, I, I'll, I'll be great. And lo and behold, it went seven. Now, I did not understand the conversations that were going to come with that game seven, but I'm sure we're, we're about to get into that. <laughs> yeah, we're about to get into that. I'm going to preface it, and then I'd love to love for you to take it from there. So yep. we're going into game seven. Vince Carter decides the day of the game to go to his college graduation from North Carolina. He had promised his mother and his family that he would walk at graduation after only spending three years at North Carolina. And lo and behold, this causes a tsunami of, of outrage with the media, uh, with the talking heads of the NBA, and even yeah. some, some players on his team saying, you know, this is a star player. Why is he going to his graduation in the day before the biggest game of his and our lives. So that's, that's the scene. I would love for you to take it from there and just discuss sort of the implications of this and how this mirrored the discourse that was going on in society. For one, I think it needs to be stated just how much of a role education and Vince's parents and his, you know, specifically his mom played in his life. Like he, he, not calling him a mama's boy by any stretch of the imagination, even though I don't think that's a negative term because I consider myself a mama's boy. But like he made a promise to his mother that like, yo, I will graduate and I'm going to hold that that promise for you. Now, some people say, well, you could have walked in the summer or you could have done this. But no, he wanted to walk with, I guess, his class. And so he flew down to Chapel Hill. I, I believe the ceremony was at like nine in the morning and he was back in Philly where game seven was going to be, uh, he was back in Philly by noon. So he didn't even miss shoot around. Now, when I wrote the article that I did last year, you know, I had a couple of you know NBA players reach out to me, none in a, in a combative or negative sense. Some agreed, some didn't. There was some told me like, yo, even 20 years later, Vince still shouldn't, he, he could have walked at another time. You don't leave on game seven and you're the star player on that team. So I've never been on an NBA team, so I can't sit here and go back and forth with the, you know, a guy who's actually been in those trenches. And but me personally, I didn't have an issue with it. I still don't have an issue with it because I would have probably done the same thing. I probably would have. Now, some people may look at me funny for that, but I probably would have. But I think when you look at the numbers that at that point in time. And I believe it was at that point in time, only 42% of division one men's basketball players graduated from college. And when you look at for black players, it was even lower. It was 34%. So whether Vince Carter realized what he was doing at the time to try to bucket that trend, I don't know. I don't think Vince Carter realized what he was doing at that moment. He, he just wanted to graduate. He made a promise to his family. He wanted to fulfill that. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, 
man, he he was tore apart in the media for that. They called him selfish. They called him arrogant. And it's way it's crazy because like you calling somebody arrogant for going to get their college degree, you know that you know it, it, he's going to get his college degree. So, um, he was it and it, and it, it, and honestly, it put Vince in a situation where like he had to ball out in Game Seven. He had to because, um. The game wasn't until seven o'clock that night. So he was back in Philly for at least seven, eight hours before tip off. Uh, it wasn't like it wasn't like uh, he showed up like at 630, 30 minutes before tip off saying, let's go. Um, but yeah, that 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 caused a huge firestorm. And, you know, in a society where we try to paint the emphasis on education and, you know, getting your degree and things of that nature uh Vince was he was ridiculed for it and I still think to this day um when people bring up that kind that, that it's kind of like a lost memory in the conversation of Vince Carter but uh it's it's a very important one because it 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 basically showed it it opens up a door into in in a Pandora's box of different conversations you know so yeah well that that game seven he plays 48 minutes and not 47 yep. minutes and 30 seconds. He plays 48 minutes. Iverson also plays 48 minutes. Vince goes six for 18 from the field. He has 20 points. Iverson goes eight for 27 from the field. So I don't know what Iverson was doing the night before, but they, 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 they <laughs> both, they both struggle and it all comes down to the last shot where Vince gets a look, a decent look and he misses look. and the Sixers advance and the Raptors go home. Iverson goes on to defeat the Bucks in seven games in the Eastern Conference Finals. Which was a great series as well. An amazing series, an incredible mm-hmm. series. Don't bring that one up to Bucks fans because yeah, they yeah, quickly, I, I was gonna say yeah, <laughs> they will quickly point to the referees there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he becomes immortalized in an NBA Finals where they only win one game, but that one game is against the Lakers team, who Ooh. only lost one game to uh, the Sixers and only lost one game in the entire playoffs. So. Ooh. The dust kind of settles, and then the aftermath, we were talking a little bit before, but um, neither player is really able to reach the same heights throughout their career as they did in this seven-game series. Um, Iverson never makes a conference finals for the rest of his career. Vince never makes the playoffs in Toronto for the rest of his career, has a few moments in New Jersey, has a moment in Orlando. But this is really, when we look back, the apex of both Allen Iverson and Vince Carter, two players that still are on our Instagram and Twitter feeds damn near yeah. every day and players that people still look up to. So just looking at this series in the aftermath, uh, what are your, what are your closing thoughts from this series with Allen Iverson and Vince Carter? I mean, you mentioned it a little bit earlier uh, to me, for me personally, it is my favorite non-final series of all time. Mm-hmm. For one, we spoke about the fireworks that happened on the court, but also I believe a lot of conversations that that revolved around Allen Iverson, that, that revolved around Vince Carter, were so important then, but they're even more important now to talk about, as, we, as we've done over the course of this conversation. Um, but I think I, a lot of times, man, as basketball fans, sometimes we can take for granted guys like, you know, Michael Jordan, who just got there almost at will whenever he wanted to, like LeBron making 10 straight finals, you know, KD being able to do what he's, what he's doing. Um, Giannis being able to do what he's doing. Like these are all time great players, but like 
the window for championships for 99.9% of players who ever come into the league is either non-existent or it's microscopic to begin with. So when we, when we talk about Iverson in 2001 and Vince in 2001, and these are the apex of, you know, their careers in terms of what they were able to accomplish in the postseason, it's not necessarily, a, it's not a knock on them at all, but it is a reminder of like, yo, these, these paths are not guaranteed. And sometimes they close just as quickly as they open up, you know? Oh, go ahead. I'm glad that you brought that up because even today we see these players like a John Moran, a Jokic, a Giannis, yeah. and they're, they're so incredible and, and, and so exciting but yet we have all these people continuing to debate, oh, he's better than him. No, you know, he's good, but he's not yeah. as good as him. And it's like, yo, just enjoy what you are yeah. watching. Because as you, as you said, you don't know if you'll ever see this again. Things no. happen like that in the NBA. No. You don't, man. And it's just like, when we look at the NBA now, like we're spoiled, bro. Like there's mm -hmm. so many great players. Like, obviously you look at somebody like LeBron, obviously the Lakers season has gone to hell in a handbasket. But, like, this dude's 37 years old, and had the Lakers been a top-five team in the West, this dude would be right in the thick of the MVP conversation. 100%. So we see guys like that, but then we see guys like John Morant. We see Luka. We see Joker. We see Giannis, MB. So, like, there is an embarrassment of riches in the league, and there will be for a long time. Now, the thing to remember about that is there's an embarrassment of riches, but not everybody's going to hit the lottery, which is – winning the NBA finals. There are going to be several players from this generation who don't advance to a conference finals, who don't advance to an NBA finals and don't win an NBA finals. Because I mean, we know what the history is. Like the, one of the most popular stats in the NBA is like since 1980, I don't know what it is right now, what only like yeah, 13 10, teams, yeah. something like that. I, I don't know the exact number, but you know what I'm saying? So when I look at, when I look at Iverson, when I look at Vince Carter, you know, I've had to come to this realization is like, yo, it's, it's not a disappointment that, that they never got back to that level of success in the postseason or anything of that nature. It's just a, a, the reality of things. And, you know, man, like I think about Iverson like this and you, you'll, you'll have fun with this game too. Like who was, who was Iverson's second best teammate? Oh, I mean, I mean, so they had Matumbo, who was. Yeah. Uh, are you who's saying aging Matumbo ever, ever, ever in Philly or just this year? Uh, well, no, 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 ever during AS time in Philly. I mean, uh, he had Jerry Stackhouse early on yep. that didn't work out. He had Larry Hughes that didn't yep. really work out. I mean, Matumbo, who was old, but yep. I mean, no, you're right. It's uh, even Vincent Toronto. Like, yeah. Now I, I do always wonder. What could have happened for Vince in Toronto if T-Mac never left? I understand why T-Mac left. He wanted his own team. I get that. But, like, that that could have been something else. But for AI, his second-best teammate in my eyes was probably, like you said, Matumbo. But Matumbo was aging at that point, and Matumbo was never uh, an offensive powerhouse. Now, on the defensive end, he was phenomenal. He's a Hall of Famer for that reason. Stackhouse just didn't work because I think they kind of played basically the same game. Yeah. Now, I want to play this. You can always play the what-if game. Who knows how it would have panned out. But in 1998, the Philadelphia 76ers draft Larry Hughes with the eighth pick. Do you know who the ninth and tenth picks were? Uh, was it Dirk Nowitzki and uh, 
he was he's another not, NBA 75. Um played in the same division as Philly, Paul Pierce. Yeah, geez. So you draft Larry Hughes, who had a solid NBA career. And I, I like Larry Hughes, but That's no comparison. Okay. So let's say Philly in an alternate universe drafts Paul Pierce. Maybe it ends up the same way it does with Jerry Stackhouse. Mm-hmm. The interesting one in all this, what if Philly takes Dirk Nowitzki? Iverson, for, for all the knocks against him, he, you know, he shot too much. He was this, that, and the third. He was a great playmaker as well. He could get mm-hmm. people involved. Can you imagine a world where Iverson and he, Iverson has Dirk as his teammate? Like, it would it would it would be crazy. I mean, it would it would have to be it would have to be championships. Yeah. And in 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 a perfect world, Dirk still becomes Dirk, but but AI doesn't feel that that stress of like I gotta go out and get 35 every night because I got a guy on my team who could go out and get 40 if I need him to. And you know, so it's just and maybe Iverson never leaves Philly if that's the case. Maybe he doesn't get traded to Denver or you know, the end of his career isn't as tough to watch as 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 it happened but you know it's just just one of those things man we don't know we just don't know the chips fall you take you take one player over another instead of another like you just don't know man i i I look back on that all the time especially especially with ai's career you mentioned just like the influx of talent that we've had uh but i i think another key difference is just how much each move in the front office is analyzed and scrutinized and i wonder and additionally, just with this player empowerment era, how quickly would Allen Iverson or Vince Carter, how much quicker would they have basically gave the front office an ultimatum, get me help, or I'm not going to play here. I think that wasn't, that never happened in the early 2000s and that would have happened. But yeah, man, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, it, the player empowerment era, they, had it started a decade earlier instead of 2010, which we largely associate with the decision. Um, had it started in 2000 instead of 2010, who knows, man? Like, uh, it, that, that, that is fascinating to think about. That is fascinating to think about. Well, I think just leaving the listeners on, on your point and, and our point that as you watch these playoffs and as the NBA enjoy the star players while you have them, you do not yep. know how long that is going to last. Yep. Stop comparing them to other players. Whoever wins MVP is going to win MVP. The voters are going to yep. decide. And that's not a knock on whoever doesn't win MVP. It's not a knock on who gets bounced in the first round, who has an unfortunate injury to their team. There are so many things that have to go your way to win a championship. And yep. that doesn't mean that you are better than the next player. It's a subjective conversation, in my opinion. It's like debating what your favorite song is. I think basketball... Yeah basketball players are artists and their games are unique and you have to enjoy what they bring to the table and just what a spectacle they are. So I think that this was just a, an amazing conversation. It's timely with the playoffs coming up and we, we recently passed the 20th anniversary last year. I would uh, urge and recommend everybody listening to go and read your article on the playoff series. I will link it on the page, but this was an amazing conversation Two of the most iconic players ever and will remain to be the most iconic players ever uh justin thank you man um any closing thoughts and in, in any anywhere you want to direct your the listeners and and just talk about what you're working on now yeah i just want to say thank you so much for having me on here like if you ever want to talk about another playoff series or anything yeah else, we'll I, have to do it these are these are the type of conversations i've just been having with my boys for years so it, it's great to have it 
uh, on a platform as influential as yours. So you. everybody who's going to listen to this, watch this or whatever, like I, I do hope you understand, like this was a great series, but these two young men, they had a lot on their shoulders at that point in time too. They, they were carrying a lot. So when you hear people say, yeah, well, Allen Iverson took a lot of bumps and bruises so players today can have the freedom to express themselves the way that they do. That is actually very, very, very true. And so it, it, Allen Iverson is a, a trailblazer, and I don't mean no pun intended with that. He is a trailblazer in every sense of the word. And there's a reason, there's a reason why you see players younger than him always speak of him with this deep, deep almost religious like reverence and 100 it's 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 deserved and i and iverson gives that love right back so i do want to say that but yeah go back and watch the series it's on youtube you, you'll be gladly gladly entertained but uh for me uh yeah man it's april 1st so we're we're within a month uh, less than a month and a half uh my book i don't know if you can see it but uh my book right here it's a biography of uh biggie smalls biggie it was all a dream, Biggie in the world that made him. Please pre-order that uh, anywhere you want to get your books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and you, you don't want to get it from an indie bookstore, whatever you want to do, comes out May 10th. I'm um, super excited about it. And speaking of Iverson, there actually is a part in there about Allen Iverson, about well, where Biggie and Allen Iverson met up a couple of weeks before he was killed out, out in LA. So um, it's that. I got some other NBA players in here, Shaq, Grant Hill. Um, so... Yeah, hope you pick it up. Please pre-order. Well, we'll definitely check it out. We'll also see you on all around the horn. We'll read yep. your stories on ESPN and the Undefeated. JT, man, again, appreciate your time, and uh, we'll we'll be in touch. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. That was Forgotten Seasons with Justin Tinsley on the Vince Carter versus Allen Iverson 2001 Eastern Semis. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Drop a rating and a review if you liked what you just listened to. I will catch you next week. Until then, peace.